good. Okay, well, good. So, uh, so we'll get started here and we'll start off as we usually do with our land acknowledgement. I'm actually, because we have some folks from Southern Alberta, I'm actually going to do the Southern Alberta land acknowledgement, Lethbridge and area land acknowledgement today. So we acknowledge Treaty 7 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Blackfoot Confederacy, Kainai, Pitani, Siksika, as well as the Tsutsina Nation and Stony Nakoda First Nation. We acknowledge that this territory is home to the Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3 within the historical Northwest Métis homeland. We acknowledge the many First Nations, Métis and Inuit who have lived in and cared for these lands for generations. We're grateful for the traditional knowledge keepers and elders who are still with us today and those who have gone before us. We seek to build respectful and harmonious relationships with these nations and all people to encourage mutual understanding and honor the authentic, authentic history of North America and Canada, its original people and the story of the creation of this country that has historically been missing. We make this acknowledgement as an act of reconciliation and gratitude to those whose territory we reside on or are visiting. Okay, uh, so we'll uh, we'll start off too with the greeting. So, Sensei, welcome. <laughs> Dave, welcome. Lauren, welcome. Grayson, welcome. And. Welcome, Jenna, welcome, and Randall, welcome. Uh, so this will be our, our second Dharma talk for Rocky Mountain Zen. So I just wanted to make a few announcements before we, uh, we get started. Uh, so next week, so this Sunday and next Tuesday, there, there isn't any organized uh, Zazen or uh, Dharma talk or, or uh, Dharma discussion. I'm, I'm heading on a jet plane or at least a Dash 8 plane to Victoria for a few days. So celebrate my, my first anniversary. So that's, uh, so I'm, I'm gonzo from here. So, uh, but um, you'll be pleased to know for those of you in the Lethbridge area, it isn't on the website yet, Nika Yuko. I'm hoping it will be soon. Uh, Club Zen uh, will start at the garden on August the 9th at uh, 9 a.m. And um, yeah, so info will be on the Nika Yuko Japanese, Nika Yuko Japanese garden website. And I'll, I'll, of course, I'll post something uh, to the Rocky Mountains and website and the Facebook page as well. So uh, that is coming. Um, and then starting August 10th, I guess, sorry, I guess I should say probably August 8th for Club Zen. It's whatever the Sunday is. Sorry, I think I had the wrong day there. Uh, 8th, sorry, 8th for Club Zen, the Sunday morning at 9 a.m. at the Garden. So um, I am told when I was down there this last week that uh, they had already received inquiries from people I'd never heard of before that were interested in Club Zen in Lethbridge. So we will see. We will see if uh, who comes out on the eighth. So that's uh, so it's a good sign. August tenth, um, as we as we talked about last week, we'll start a discussion of uh, the book Kodosawaki um, Uchiyamaroshi and Shohaku Kimura, Zen Teachings of the Homeless Kodo. Um, so we'll start that on the, uh, the 10th. I'm hoping to have some text to put up on screen, but I know some of you have already got the book as well. So 
uh, please join us for that. Um, I'm going to make a pre-announcement to something. Hope, okay, hopefully it's okay that I, I do this. Um, I haven't gotten complete confirmation that this is going to be a thing yet, but I'm, um, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that the garden is going to say yes to this. Um, on, August the, <laughs> on August the 28th in the evening, I believe it was about six o'clock. So it's a Saturday evening, August 28th. Um, the garden, we're tentatively saying Nika Yuka Japanese Garden is going to host uh, a, a Zen evening at Nika Yuko Japanese Garden, um, a discussion of the influence of Zen culture, Zen on Japanese culture by Sensei Yokoyama coming to Canada and uh, <laughs> we're going to travel down to Lethbridge at that time. So there's going to be, um, we'll sit some Zazen in the, the beautiful, tranquil Nikayuko Japanese garden. And we'll follow that with a bento box dinner is the plan. And then hopefully the, the presentation. So my guess is for those of you that are in the Southern Alberta area, it runs, I think it's, we did it last year with, uh, with the bento box meal. And I think it ran about 60 bucks for the dinner and the presentation and entry to the garden and, and all that sort of stuff. So Put it, pencil it in your calendar if you're in the area. We're gonna try and zoom it, um, so we'll we'll see how we'll see how it works. Um, but I'm they they haven't said no and they've more or less said yes. So I, I think we're a, I think we're a go if you're gonna be in the Lethbridge area for that. Um, and then I guess the last announcement I was gonna make is um, so um, thank you. Uh, last week, uh, this is the part of the pitch that I, I absolutely hate doing, but I feel we don't have a lot of overhead. We have a website, we have a licensed Zoom channel, etc. But uh, we also want to uh, to give uh, the teachers who are giving our giving the Dharma talks a little bit a little bit of love and a little bit of dinero. So um, if you feel like donating, um, RockyMountainZen.org is the website at the bottom of the page. There's a a donation box and we use uh buy us a cup of coffee that's the that's the platform we've been using so you can if you feel so inclined and are able to do so feel free to uh to, to do a donation and that's the end of that spiel so without further ado uh it is a great pleasure that uh i introduce dave cuomo i'm going to read your your angel city zen bio dave so oh god <laughs> So Dave uh, is uh, helped found and serves as the resident caretaker for Angel City Zen Center, Los Angeles. Um, he's been practicing Zen since 2007 and is originally was originally with the Nashville Zen Center under the tutelage of Sensei Michael Elliston. In 2015, he moved to Los Angeles to attend the University of West of the West's Buddhist Chaplaincy MDiv program. Uh, and joined Doga Sangha Los Angeles. He was ordained by Brad Warner um, from the lineage of Wudawafu Nishijima. Uh, and Dave was ordained a priest in 2017. And before taking on Buddhism full-time, Dave was one half of the folk punk duo Chicken Little uh, and former chef and owner of the Bella Nashville Pizzeria and Bakery. So thank you very much for joining us this evening, Dave. And over to you. Thank you, Aaron. Um, oh, wait, let's let's start with, can I send out my own link? Because I have an opening Dharma verse. Oh, yes. Which we should do together, but all with our mics off, right? So everybody mute yourselves. 
and then I will I will lead the chant. But unfortunately, satellites can't do it in time. <laughs> so all together, no less together. Uh, do you get everybody got the link there? And click on you see opening Dharmaverse. I had one guy email me last week and be like, I can't find the opening Dharmaverse every time. I see the handouts, but not the opening Dharmaverse. I was like, it's right there, man. Like, <laughs> I sent him back a screenshot with a highlighted circle. I didn't want to make him feel bad, but it's cool. He kept coming, so we're good. All right, here we go. Opening Dharmaverse. An unsurpassed, penetrating, and perfect Dharma is rarely met with, even in a hundred thousand million kalpas. Having it to see and listen to, to remember and accept, I vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. All right, there's an opening down reverse. Okay, so what am I talking about? I'm not entirely sure. That's the problem. Um, I did prepare. I, I did. I did do some homework for this. I got readings for you. That was the most important part. But the problem I didn't. When you do these things for people you don't know, and I'm not the most experienced Zen, I'm going to say speaker, um, because I am not. First thing to say is, let's go along with that bio. So I'm not actually a teacher. Zen rule, there, there are some very heavy unspoken Zen rules, or maybe half spoken Zen rules. And there's lines between what is and is not a teacher. And a good teacher will never claim to be a teacher, from what I understand, but I wouldn't know and don't have to worry about that because I am definitely not a teacher. Um, I, I tell people around here that I'm kind of the, uh, I'm the TA, so I'm kind of the, the under assistant to, uh, to Brad. Brad is the head teacher, um, Brad Warner here, and I do all this dirty work for him. So I figure I'm the TA and people can still call me and I'll talk to them. But I figure it's like a grad student when you're in a PhD program, you call them for like the what's up with that. I'm like, I don't know, but I think it's this, you know, so nothing I say is definitive um which i really enjoy that so te technically this isn't even a dharma talk this is just some guy that aaron knows that he called to come talk to you <laughs> to fill some time so here i am filling time for you after zazen uh brad always says that the talks are just the dessert after to get you to do your zazen eat your vegetables and then we can have the talk you know anyway so yeah like aaron said i've been doing zen since about 2007 I actually started with non-zen groups and I liked them, but not as much as Zen. But also I really didn't like Zen at first, I'll be honest. I was doing a Shambhala group and it was like a kind of a hipster offshoot. So it was like a real casual thing on the Lower East Side with, um, he was, the guy was the son of a pr fairly prominent Shambhala teacher and he was kind of on his way up in the organization. And he's a super great guy. And you know, I thought he was a really good teacher. And it's like, one of those things when you first start going to Buddhism, I don't know your guys' experience has been or how long you've been practicing. When I first started going, just like every talk was just like uncannily what I needed to hear that week. And it was mind blowing. He taught it like, nice thing about Shambhala is they give you a lot of what it all very snottily called training wheels so that some newbie like me can come in and like actually get something out of it. Whereas here in Zen, I feel like when done properly, like you're not going to get anything useful from this whatsoever. And, you know, you're welcome. That's how this works. But I personally really appreciated not starting with Zen because this guy gave me useful things tips on how to be a better, happier person. And they worked. I became a better, happier person over the course of that year. And it was great. And then I heard that Zen was pretty cool. Like, I, I don't know if I got into the stuff for mysticism or what I got in or for self-help. I really don't remember. I had like, I think I had excuses. I was like, I want to quit smoking. I want to help with writer's block, you know, like these were my practical reasons. But had I read some Ninja, Ninja Turtle comics when I was a kid where Zen was like 
this like mystical, crazy magic thing. Yeah. So I was like, I'm, I want to go learn that Zen, but you can't say that out loud. That just sounds stupid. So you go say you're going to quit smoking and you check out the local Zen temple. So I went to this place in Brooklyn, you know, I've been going to this hipster offshoot group and I show up here and there's guys in gray robes and belts and there's columns and it's a temple and there's a big boot on the altar and they are chanting. I don't know what the crap is going on, but I think I've walked into a cult and I'm pretty freaked the crap out. And this guy points me to the, you know, where to be in the chapel. I'm like, and we're doing the heart sutra. And then I will say this though, what I was saying, I was like, this is the most true thing I have ever heard in my life. I couldn't believe somebody actually said it. I grew up in Western philosophy. I don't know if you study Western philosophy, but they're pretty sure there are no answers and they've tried them all. And I'm telling you they're wrong because people found some answers 2000 years ago over in Asia and nobody bothered to tell the West or the West wasn't listening. I'm not sure which happened, but I get in this temple and some things I think I've known in my heart since I was a little kid that just made all of society crazy and me feel crazy are in this book and I am chanting no eyes, no ears, no nose, no tongue with my nose, tongue, body, and mind. And I'm like, thank you for saying it out loud. And I was so excited. I looked around and I was like, but I can't do this. So if I can get this, that does not look like this, I'm all on board. And so luckily I moved to Nashville and the group there just, I like to think it was a choice, but it really wasn't. They just didn't have their stuff together too well. And so they had just found a new teacher. They're working on their forms and their rituals. And they just couldn't do them yet. It was two guys in a room falling over each other, laughing and stumbling and forgetting their words and their lines in this complicated Zen ceremony. And I was like, these are my people. Make it elaborate, make it beautiful and don't know how to do it. And now I can hang out. So that was my Zen. And then I spent several years with them learning how to do it. And the joke is by the end of it, we knew how to do it. And now I'm quite well-trained in ceremonies. Now I'm training people in ceremonies and I'm that guy but I hated it at first. They would make me wear a robe on Saturdays. And I was just like, get me out of this thing. This is not the truth. This is like some stuffy old thing from a culture that is not mine. No offense to from that culture. It was just my punk rock angry brain at 26, you know? Um, and he's making me do prostrations and like bowing my head in prostration or something like, absolutely not. And for seven years, every week, I put on a robe and went, God darn it, screw you, you know, my head to the floor. After seven years of doing that, like, my God darn it, screw you. I'm, I'm, I'm going the mouth. It's not how it sounds in my head. You know how it sounded in my head. I'm trying to keep this PG-13. But um, that became what I was bowing to. You do that every week for seven years. And at a certain point, who are you cursing? You know, you're the idiot who showed up. You're the one bowing to the Buddha. And that just became beautiful. And that's how I found myself in Zen was like my own angry punk rock screw you just became my Buddha. And that was the Buddha that I bow to. And now every morning I still do it. And I, I just, I love it now. We have, as part of why, so sorry, long story short, I don't even know what this talks about. So far it's about me. Anyway, <laughs> so <laughs> seven years in Nashville and I think Zen, I'm loving Zen. It's going pretty well for me. I've sewn a rakasu. I did their version of Jukai and what they called discipleship. They had a, a step in between Jukai and ordainment called, um, I actually forget all the words. There's Zaike Tokudo and Suke Tokudo. I'm sorry for butchering it because <laughs> um, we don't use these words very often around here. But anyway, there, he, he instituted a, a step between um, Jukai and ordainment that he called discipleship. And so I did that there. And I, I was really just loving it by then, you, with all, despite all the BS and along with the BS. And, um, and then my life fell apart. In, in, a, in the space of like two months, I got a divorce. My business fell apart. 
And I, um, I just had a really bad year. <laughs> just one of those years where you're like, I don't know what's next and I don't want to, you, you don't, I don't know. Like we talk about emptiness and Zen. And all I know of that year is it felt like somebody was carving my body out with a spoon every day. And Zen had told me that's the right thing to do. And I'll tell you, it did not feel good. It did not feel like enlightenment, but it didn't feel wrong. I'll tell you that after at that point, seven or eight years of practice, there was a little voice that kept whispering in my ear that was just like, this is part of it. Don't forget this is part. I don't know if the Zoom is letting me pick up my whisper. This is part of it, it whispered to me. <laughs> and um, that really helped. And it's, it's one of those years where just like all of your illusions of, so I guess I still get choked up talking about it um, in a good way. All of your illusions of yourself. I thought, I, I thought Zen was actually helping me. I think it actually did. Like trying to run a wood-fired pizza oven. We might not even get the text. I'm so sorry. I'm just talking about myself. <laughs> These are my stories. Um, trying to run a wood-fired pizza oven is a hard thing to do. It's 900 degrees. This pizza cooks in 90 seconds. We let it sit for more than this long on the bottom of the thing, the whole bottom burns and ruin the whole thing. You have to stretch it to like less than two millimeters thin, which means it really can't, everything has to be perfect. And I've, I have made probably a perfect pizza like four or five times in my life, which is saying a lot because like there's a lot that goes into making, you have to have your dough just right. Your flame is just right. Like the right amount of top heat curling over the dome to the right amount of stone heat, which means you have to have the right size wood cut, dry to just the right amount. And to get all of these things perfect in one moment was my constant everyday thing. I'll tell you a practice of mindfulness or whatever you want to call this. We don't, we don't use that word here, 30 word here, but it, it's a good word. It's useful. Um, we're, we're stupid about that. Anyway, um, it can make you better at things like that. Cause you just learn to pay attention and kind of drop yourself and pay attention. Anyway, I thought I'd gotten pretty good at things. And sometimes I could even understand people better and I could forgive myself or forgive people better. I could listen and communicate. And I could know when to say and when not to say. And I was getting a little bit cocky. And then all at once, all of your illusions crumble. <laughs> not to say those things weren't true, but they weren't what I wanted them to be and didn't mean what I wanted them to mean. They didn't mean that I could run the idealistic hippie anarchist sense of a business that I really hoped that I could. It didn't mean that the people around me were going to live up to my expectations of them um, and my expectations of myself, uh, that my relationship was up to what I hoped it was. In fact, all of those things were so far from the truth. And then I reacted so badly that I can't blame anybody because I think I was the worst of all of us that, in the lead up to that. And so just everything crumbles. And you're like, well, what now? And Zen always told me, this is it too. So I was like, well, I guess this is it too. And I didn't know. <laughs> and then I was at the bakery one night and I was sleeping on the dish pit floor because I didn't have time to go home in between my shifts because it's the bakery hours, right? And so I'm like catching a few hours sleep in between when the oven has to kick on at midnight, the oven was broken. So I had to like wake up and like check the oven and get back to sleep on the dish pit floor and then get back to work at three in the morning. This is my life. And I'm reading Brad Warner's blog where he's like, I'm gonna start a Zen center in, in Los Angeles. And I'm reading about it, I've been reading Brad Warner for years. And I was like, if there's any way <laughs> that I could trade this to go do that, man count me in and then not a week later a guy shows up to the pizzeria it's one of those moments in life it's like being discovered in music i'm just sitting there like working and angry and hating everybody as usual um but still doing a good job don't worry i was making great pizza but this and this guy sits across the bar from me and he and he's like he's decked out and I, i'm not saying he's his common commendary things he's an older middle-aged guy with a bit of a tub and very nice uh suit and a a very attractive young woman next to him who seemed way younger than him. <laughs> and he just looks at me when she gets up and goes to the bathroom and goes, I've been watching you. <laughs> it's like, what is that? He's like, 
we should work together. And I was like, who are you? And it turns out he's kind of like a producer for restaurants. He makes deals happen. And he was talking about wanting to open me an actual, it was a kind of a, a stand, a food stand. And he's like, well, um, I want to open you a restaurant. We, we, could, we could do things. Here's how you do things. And I looked at him for a few minutes and I was like, well, what if I just sold you my restaurants and left? Can I do that instead? It's like, yeah, we can do that. It's like, sweet. <laughs> and so I got this guy to teach me capitalism. And he taught me capitalism. And I realized that these things, I had two businesses. And all I knew of business was that I worked 80 to 100 hours a week and I didn't get paid. That's why I knew about being a business owner because nobody really trained me on what be, about being a business owner meant. And he taught me that these things I've been working on for years were worth money. I didn't know you could sell them and leave for cash. So I could trade my life of working too much for no money for a life of not working with a big pile of money. So I did that. <laughs> and that took a year to pull off. And I don't want to tell my finances. I hope this is useful. Um, and came out here to uh, kind of like starting Zen. I, I, knew, I knew grad well. And I know what, I'm kind of alluding to Zen stuff here. Like, you don't call yourself a teacher for a reason when you're a teacher. Some people do. Actually, it's really good that some people do. But there's a lot of training in not thinking of yourself in those terms. Like in the Diamond Sutra, it's like the teacher does not teach the Bodhisattva, does not see a Bodhisattva. You know, you, if you see the Buddha, kill the Buddha. Like we don't, if you do these things, you kill them. You know, you kill the heart of it by trying to make it the thing you want it to be. Anyway, so Brad's pretty good about that to an extreme, about those ideas of like, and so I knew like if I sold my businesses to move out here to like come join his Zen center, that's going to freak out Brad Warner. <laughs> so I did not do that. I found a grad school to become for chaplaincy that happened to be here, which was just the truth. And I made a plan to go into military chaplaincy, which just happened to leave me in Los Angeles for three years without having to work. Um, while Brad happened to be starting the center, I just kind of hung out to see if the center would happen. I kept being like, hey, Brad, how's that center? Hey, Brad, how's that center for a year? And then one day he called me after dinner and goes, um, so that center, our, I think exactly how he said it. Our group isn't really good at things. You seem to be good at getting things done. Can you do it? And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, can you just do a center? I was like, you don't know what that means, do you? He's like, no. It's like, got it. <laughs> yes, yes, I can. I've done things. <laughs> and so he kind of gave me a blank check to just do things. And every once in a while, he'd be like, not that. I'd be like, oh, okay. And that was how we figured out what a center was. And then one night he stayed up too late and wrote a big angry tirade about what exactly a center is. And I was like, well, thank you, finally. After we had signed the lease and set it up, he sent me a 20-page tirade on what a center is and how the protocols work. And I was like, all right. While he, while he was gone, uh, um, cool, bro. And then he went on tour and he came back while I set, up, I, I set up and built out the whole thing for him. We did all the icons and the statues and the rooms and the protocols. And, uh, you know, it was a lot of work and you're nervous because your teacher isn't there to like help you do it. And then he comes home from tour and they give him the walk around. They're all like waiting for him, tell me what a good job I did. And he, he, he walks around the place and just goes, that's wrong. That's wrong. This, this is my bad word impression. That's not right. That's not right. It's okay. Thanks. And then I'll be out the door. He goes, probably should have said the nice things first, shouldn't I have? <laughs> and then he walks away. And I was like, perfect. <laughs> that's, that's what I needed. And then he ordained me and named me Big Nothing. Um, it was that my, my Dharma name is Great Emptiness, but he was, he's like, just, no, this is big nothing. And I was like, I think I get the joke. Anyway, that's my story. And that was all, we've been doing this for five years now. So that's what I know of myself and Zen. Anyway, let's read a Zen story now. I think we still have, what time did I start? Aaron, what time do you want me to stop talking my mouth off? We'll do maybe five or so more minutes if that works for everybody. Yeah. Okay, great.
Yeah, I've said plenty. I think I might read to you for five minutes. Is that okay? And say a very few things? Sweet. All right, so if you click on your first handout, Maha Kasyapa, um, I, might, I might be a jerk and read for seven minutes. We'll see what happens. I wanna read you about these things, they're beautiful. Um, so click on Maha Kasyapa. We're not gonna read all of this. We're gonna read the case because Aaron told me to talk about lotus flowers. So I just thought, oh, I know a story about flowers. This is a story about flowers, which you may have heard before. It's a classic. It goes, the case. The first patriarch was Mahakasyapa. Don't worry about the genderness. People can say ancestor. Our first ancestor was Mahakasyapa. Once the world honored one held up a flower and blinked. I like to think he winked. Kasyapa smiled. The world honored one said, I have the treasury of the true Dharma and the wondrous mind of Nirvana and I transmit it to Mahakasyapa. So there you go. That was, that's the story of Zen. It's not that grandiose, is it? <laughs> that's how Zen started. <laughs> it's no King Arthur pulling a sword from a stone, but it's pretty close and I think a whole lot better. All that happened, Buddha had to give a Dharma talk. He holds up a flower. One guy gets the joke and he goes, you, <laughs> you're my guy. And that's how, and we've been doing that for 2,500 years. Um, eventually somebody gets the joke of their teacher and the teacher goes, I think you got it, does the wink. Um, so I, I haven't been through a Dharma transmission ceremony, but I, it's secret, but I imagine they just go, yeah, and that's, that's it. Um, but I think it's beautiful because they, like I said, is this mystical? I don't know. And I don't know why you guys are here. How long have you been doing it? Want to live a better life? Is it self-improvement? Do you want the great mystical truth of the universe? And they allude to that great mystical truth of the universe a lot. And they talk in circles around it. And they usually leave it as just a big mystery. Like what did... What did Mahakasyapa see and what did Buddha mean? And they're never going to quite tell you. And that's baffling. I think Zen is bafflingly stupid because I'll tell you right now, every single one of you understands that story perfectly. That much I know for certain. And I cannot explain to you why that's true or what the story means or what you know. But whatever you're thinking right now is exactly it. And that is the stupidness of Zen. Um, and so people can like, well, then why bother? I should just go home. We should get off the Zoom call and stop doing meditation. It's like, no, because that's beautiful. And you just get, it just gets more beautiful and you understand it more beautifully the more time goes on. But whatever you're doing right now is, it'll never get any better than that either. That's the carrot they're going to hold to you, hold out to you for 20 years. Just this, but also it gets better, but don't ever say that out loud because it's not really true, you know? Um, and then I'll keep you practicing for your whole life. Anyway. I'm talking too much. So let's read this Taisho. I think this is, this is nice. Uh, so skip the uh, circumstances and let's read the Taisho. The so-called holding up a flower at, of that time has been intimately transmitted from patriarch to patriarch. It has not been indiscriminately transmitted to outsiders. Therefore, it has not been understood by teachers of the scriptures and treatises or even by many meditation teachers. In truth, they did not understand its true meaning. Be that as it may, this koan is not the koan of the assembly at Mount Gurdrakuta, but rather the words transmitted at the stupa of many children. I don't know what that's about. It is not a matter of what was said on Mount Gurdrakuta, as claimed by the Chuangding Lu. That's uh, one of the older Chinese uh, records of Zen. The Budang Lu, same thing, and others. When the Buddha Dharma was transmitted the very first time to Mahakasyapa, there was this kind of etiquette. If you are not a patriarchal teacher who transmits the seal of Buddha mind, you do not understand the occasion of, holding, of his holding up the flower. See, I lied to you nor do you understand the spirit of his holding up the flower. You must meticulously study and carefully experience it. Understand that Kashyapa is Kashyapa and clarify that Shakyamuni is Shakyamuni and separately transmit the perfectly pure way. See, I love this because this is gonna keep contradicting itself. <laughs> it's gonna tell you, you can never understand it. It's 
going to tell you that you are only it and it already understands you and you are understanding it entirely. It's going to keep you going. Put aside for a while the holding up of the flower and clarify the blinking. There's not a hair's breadth of difference between your ordinary lifting your eyebrows and blinking, that's you right now, and Gautama's holding up of the flower. See, I told you. There's not a hair's breadth of difference between your speaking and smiling and Mahakasyapa's breaking into a smile. However, if you do not know who it, who it was who raised his eyebrows and blinked, then Shakyamuni and Mahakasyapa are in India, and skin, flesh, bones, and marrow are within you. See, that's a, that's a cut down. It's saying if you leave all this stuff back in India as an ancient story of like great people doing great things, then you've lost it. If you just leave your bones and marrow in you, what a waste. <laughs> you are everything. Why keep that to yourself? Like, let it go. Forget that you think you can understand this and just be, be this. So many flowers in your eyes, so much floating dust. You have not yet been liberated for countless eons and for count eons to come, you will be ruined. Poof, it's like the fire and brimstone of Zen. If only once you thoroughly know the Lord, then Mahakasyapa will be able to move his toes in your sandals. Don't you know that Gautama completely vanished when he raised his eyebrows and blinked and that Kashyapa was enlightened when he smiled? Isn't it our own then? The treasury of the eye of the true Dharma has been completely transmitted to yourselves. Therefore, it cannot be called Kashyapa or Shakyamuni. See, it's not them. Never presenting this Dharma to others, never receive the Dharma from another. This is called the true law. In order to indicate that, the Buddha held up a flower and showed that it was unchanging. Kashyapa smiled to show that it was eternal. In this way, Kashyapa and Maha, Shakyamuni and Mahakashyapa became acquainted and their life pulses intermingled. Perfectly pure, complete understanding is not involved with the ordinary discriminating mind. So Mahakasyapa sat in meditation and cut out the root of thought. He entered Mount Kukudapada, where he awaits the future appearance of Maitreya. That's the Buddha to be. Even now, Mahakasyapa has not entered Nirvana. This part is important. Monks, that's you today. Don't worry about it. If you intimately study the way and investigate carefully, not only is Mahakasyapa not extinct, but Shakyamuni abides eternally. This is very good poetry. Don't worry about the mysticalness. Therefore, the wondrous mind of Nirvana, which has been directly indicated and intimately transmitted before you were born, has burgeoned and spread everywhere from antiquity to the present. Monks, do not yearn for the antiquity of 2,000 years ago. You just urgently practice the way today. Kasyapa has not yet entered Mount Kukudapada, but can appear in Japan and the USA. Shakyamuni's fleshy body will be warm right now, and Kashyapa's smile will be new again. If you can reach this place, then you will be a successor to Kashyapa, and Kashyapa will receive the true law from you. Not only does it come down to you from the seven past Buddhas, but you will be able to be the patriarchal teacher of the seven Buddhas. Beginningless and endless, annihilating past and present, here is the abiding place of the entrusting of the treasury of the eye of the true Dharma. For this reason, Shakyamuni also received the transmission from Kashyapa, who dwells now in the heaven of the satisfied. And you also abide in the assembly of Mount Gurjakuta unchanging. Are you not familiar with the expression by Shakyamuni in the Lotus Sutra? I always abide on Mount Gurjakuta and other places, and at that time of the great confagulation at the end of the world, my land is peaceful and calm, filled with celestials and humans. Mount Gurjakuta is not the only abode of the Dharma. How could India, China, and Japan, and the USA be excluded? And Canada, I'm so sorry, I keep saying USA, and Canada be excluded. The Tathagata's true dharma is transmitted and not so much as a hair of it is lost. If this is so, this assembly here must be the assembly of Mount Gurjakuta and Mount Gurjakuta must be this assembly. On the basis of your diligence or lack of diligence, the Buddha either appears or does not appear. Today also, if you practice the way incessantly and master it in detail, the Venerable Shakyamuni will instantly appear. It is only because you have not clarified the self that Venerable Shakyamuni entered Nirvana in ancient times. Since you are children of the Buddha, why do you kill the Buddha? Therefore, you must practice the way at once and encounter your compassionate father promptly. 
Daily, the old fellow Shakyamuni, and you walk about, stand in this place, sit and lie down together, and you have words together without even a moment of separation. If in this life you do not become acquainted with the old fellow, then you will become thoroughly undutiful. Since you are the Buddha's children, then if you are undutiful, not even the hands of a thousand Buddhas will help. Jesus. Today, this descendant of Daijo Monastery, Kazan successor of Tetsu Gikai, the first abbot of Daijo Monastery, would like to say a few humble words to point to this principle. Do you want to hear them? Yes, Dave, we do. Cool. Know that in a remote place in a cloud-covered valley, there is still a sacred pine that passes the chill of the ages. Okay, so flowers, and I decided to read that, and then I read this, and I'll tell you, I love it. It's just like doing ceremonies when I started this stuff. I love it now, but if I had heard that 10 years ago, I would have hated that, and I still kind of hate it. Um, well, I love what he's doing. I'm so sorry. I'm not trying to denigrate Dharma. Like I'm, I'm a big fan. I'm reading it for a reason, saying this for a reason, but... Um, He's doing a lot of things. He's telling you that you're not doing good enough and he's exhorting you to do better. And this is particularly this guy, Kazan Jokin is the guy who made, from what I understand, made Soto Zen big in Japan, as they say. Um, Dogen was kind of the founder of the Zen that we know from Japan. And then two generations later, Kazan's the one who blew it up. Dogen had like maybe 12 followers out in the woods and Kazan's like, let's get big. I, I, I would say he's the green day of Zen. You know, the Ramones do a good thing and then green day blows it up. And so that's what he did. And you can see how those are some fiery, inspiring speeches. And he is not wrong at all. Like your practice does um, keep Buddhism alive. And that is beautiful. But question from young, angry Dave, can you kill Buddhism? No, you cannot kill Buddhism. And you're not practicing is not a sin. There's nothing wrong with you being quote unquote lazy. In fact, if you don't want to sit Zazen, the best way to want to sit Zazen again is don't sit Zazen for two weeks. I only say that because if you pay attention, you will sit Zazen again. If you've been doing Zazen for any length of time and you know what happens and you stop sitting Zazen, I guarantee you, well, this doesn't happen to everybody. I don't get it though. Whenever I stop, I go crazy again. I'm not all, all there right now. You know what I mean? Like this is as good as it gets. So when it goes below this, it gets weird, man. And so I always recommend, I don't, I don't say this anymore and it could be time and place. Like I rather tell people like, screw up and pay attention and I'll see you back here and let's discuss because the best way to the right path is to do the wrong path full heartedly and be like, oh God, that hurts. <laughs> and then you'll never do it again. Don't take my word for it. Go figure it out. You know what I'm talking about. You're all older than me or know, have lived long enough to know how this works. So anyway, I'm going to shut up now. We're not going to read Dogen, but read that Dogen piece. It's beautiful. Um, and you'll be glad you did. All right, <laughs> Aaron, what happens now? Thank you very much. That's awesome. Thanks, Dave. Um, any questions or comments for Dave? We have a few minutes left, so raise your raise your hand on the on the on the Zoom if you if you have anything you want to ask or anything you want to say. Oh, oh, you okay? Just wanted to say thank you to Dave. Thank you so much. That's, I could relate so much. And then that the word of a person who'd gone through all that stuff. Thank you. That was wonderful. I just wanted to say thank you Yeah, to a um, couple of students who went over to Angel City Zen Center. And it's wonderful to hear about Brad Warner. And uh, yeah, yeah. But I just love your um, story making transition here. That's, I believe, I mean, you know, we don't talk about superstitious things too much, but life has that kind of weird timing 
right? Things do happen a little bit in a weird way we never expect. So as was very uh, in inspiring. So thank you, just want to say that. Thank you, yeah. I, I love that about Zen that we don't talk about superstitious things. But I will say that I, and, and my therapist pointed this out two weeks ago, she's like, you have more uncanny things happen than a person has a right to expect in a lifetime. I'm like, that appears to be true. And I feel like it's the kind of thing you just keep in here in the corner of your eye. Like you don't deny that like, that's oddly narrative life, weird. <laughs> you know, but you don't try to harness it. You don't try to question it. You're just like, all right. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Like and the more I do that, the more it seems to do what it needs to do. And I, I like that path because other paths will tell you like, here's magic and how to work it. And I'm like, no, <laughs> let's not do that. That sounds dangerous or foolhardy. <laughs> Thank Great. you, Yoke. Nice to meet you. Great. Thanks. Uh, Anne. Okay. Hi, Dave. Thank you very much for your talk this evening. Um, so when you were talking about people exiting your life, and I, I'm new to Zen, so I don't know if this makes sense, but I feel like if I'm embracing my true nature and people leave or come, mm -hmm. they're meant to leave or come. Does that make sense? In a Absolutely. Zen sense? Yes. Okay. Yeah, well, speaking of bafflingly stupid, um, Brad, he'll often tell me when I really need some like faith in life, I'm having trouble when I get depressed. Or like I start questioning my, my, my life and every, all my life choices. He always tells me, I think the universe wants us to do what we're currently doing, you know? And in one hand, again, it sounds kind of superstitious, kind of mystical, like, oh, the universe is supporting me along my path. Also, he's saying absolutely nothing. He's saying what you're doing is what's happening, which is a dumb thing to say. And yet it gives me a kind of faith that things are going the right direction. One thing I've learned with people and this is hard because it's not quite what you want. Like if I know, if I treat people in the way that is balanced and good and I follow my own right path, people do come and go and it can be hard and sad, but it's always the right thing that happens. Um, if I just do my thing, when I start putting ideas on what I think is supposed to be happening and who's supposed to be in my life and why, um, that's when things go off the rails and I start getting more unbalanced. Like there's a lot of talk in the world of like cutting out negative people. I, I'm not going to say no to that. Like we need to have good boundaries and don't get yourself hurt. But also I, I will say for myself, the hard edge of that, of thinking, you know, what's what I prefer to let relationships fall apart <laughs> at their own timing and discretion, but usually they will. Like I've had experiences, even I'll say even recently, just to divulge personally a little bit with um, people that I loved and cared about very much is all, all I'll <laughs> say about them where in retrospect, like, why did that relationship fail? And I, I come to the very hubristic conclusion that it's because I was doing the right things and the relationship was not up to that. And I didn't feed, let's say, codependent situations that could have made that thing last for another painful two years that we all would have regretted, you know? And you think you screwed up, but things just went the way they had to go. Because if I only do what's right and good for me, then the things that will stick around are the things that work in a right and goodness, you know, but it can be sad along the way because sometimes bad things happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good response to that. Thank you. Thanks. Anne, right? Because you said it said it's true. Yes. But... Well, um, Anne is my middle name and uh, uh, I'm connected with Aaron on Facebook. And I, I use, I put my middle name on Facebook because anyone wants to friend me, I just say yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I know who I, 
I, I recognize who I know in real life because they call me Trudy and anyone I've just met on social media will refer to me as Anne. <laughs> so well yeah. played that age. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's my little it's my little safety valve. <laughs> nice to meet you, Anne. <laughs> nice to meet you too. And last but not least, we have Lauren and Grayson. Oh, you're muted, I think. Okay, so Dave, thanks for your talk. That was absolutely enjoyable <laughs> and wonderful. You're fantastic. I have a question though about um, wants and desires in regards to attachment. So when you were running your businesses and when you were, there was obviously a part of you that there was probably a deep want there at some point for it to be successful and for things to be prosperous or for you to make it. But like when it comes to like our lives, you know, and, and, and our work and stuff like that, like with Zen is, is the point to just let go of those wants and desires and just let them be to kind of, and then whatever happens, happens. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Is it? Is it just like a? It does. That is an ancient conundrum at the heart of how of where Mahayana and Zen split off from early Buddhism too. Early Buddhism did teach yes, we will teach you how to conquer desire. When you conquer desire, you will be enlightened. It was that simple. Um, that's why there are celibate broke monks in the woods. That was the original answer. And I'll tell you, I believe that answer is technically true, and I think it can work. I read what they did. We have the firsthand accounts of the monks nuns out there. They're writing this beautiful and kind of creepy. They're sitting out there in funeral grounds, looking at dead body parts, thinking of their bodies as like these decaying corpses and being like, I don't want to have sex anymore. I just envision this thing's a corpse for three days, you know? I'm sure that works. It's not our practice. Um, it's not how we do it. Um, Mahayana decided that yeah, there's a the whole lot of philosophy and, and, and legend behind it and ways to phrase it. But we engage and we don't intentionally cut off in those ways. We have a certain set of vows, but like, especially in Soto Zen, because of the quirks of Japanese history, um, we have a lot fewer vows to be ordained than every other Buddhist <laughs> um, in, in the world. Like, I'm a, I have a breakup story because I'm allowed to date, which is not common for a guy with a shaved head who wears a robe on Fridays, you know, um, it, and it's very confusing. But so we are more encouraged to in the more noble mystical sounding sense, go into desires in the lowest places and fully feel them in compassion, understand what they are is how it's kind of put. But what that means in practical terms, especially for lay people is don't intentionally cut it off. That would probably be stupid. And actually what you do is we've, we have decided philosophically that um, pushing away desire is creating a new attachment. You are attached that not having this thing will make you happier. Not having a relationship will make you happier. Not having money will make you happier. But I will tell you honestly from experience, and you'll notice a lot of monk-like people will have figured this out. The less I have, the happier I am. That's just true. <laughs> like I've had things, my family wasn't broke um, when I was young and they have more things now than they used to. And the more stuff they have, the more stressed they are to keep it, you know? And so it's a pretty, we've been, every, every culture learns this lesson eventually that stuff equals stress. Um, so that's part of it, but also you gotta know your limits. Like, um, some people don't need it. Some people have meditated so much they can sleep under the stars every night and beg for their breakfast and eat once a day and they're very, very happy and that's great. That might not be where you're at. You might want a roof and a comfortable bed, you know? And so I think it's about finding your own limits. And like I would say with the, the relationships or anything, my advice is always do whatever you're going to do and just pay attention and you will very quickly know what works and does not work for you, you know? 
Um, we're all about the middle way. And so, and you're going to have to find the middle way means figured out for yourself in the most polite terms possible. <laughs> um, and what I like about Zen is their instruction was never to, at least as far as I was taught it, never to have somebody else tell me what to cut out. I, all my teachers said, go find out for yourself, just be honest and pay attention. That's the only instruction on what to do with desires and attachments and the world is be honest and pay attention. And you already, you, you, you'll very quickly figure out what you already knew. <laughs> Does that help? Is that, that a direct help. answer? <laughs> Thank you very much. Great. Well, thank you very much, everybody. Thank you very much, Dave, for, uh, for a great talk. Uh, would you mind leading us in the closing? Yes. And thank you for having me. This is, it's delightful to get to talk to new people. And, and, and thank you. All right, I forget to meet yourselves so that the, the satellites don't screw up my rhythm. <laughs> Here we go. May this merit extend universally to all so that we together with all beings realize Buddha's way. All Buddha's 10 directions, three times. All honored ones, bodhisattvas, mahasattvas, Wisdom beyond wisdom, Maha Prajna Paramita. And just thank you again for having me. This is great. Thanks for doing this. Much appreciated, Dave. And thanks very much, everybody, for, for joining us. And uh, hopefully, we'll see you um, on the 9th, either in person in Lethbridge at the Nanka Yoko Japanese Garden, or we'll also be doing Zoom for that one as well. So um i'll uh, i'll send a reminder on facebook so thanks again everybody sorry for going over a little bit today but I, it, was, uh, it was a great 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 cause so <laughs> it was. sorry about that <laughs> <Good night. laughs> thank you thank, thank you, you. Bye, everybody.